Welcome to the Unscripted Podcast, where we chat with some of our pals, favorite former guests, and industry friends. Today, we're hanging with Ted Sullivan, writer and producer on ABC's Lama Revenge, at a very secret location, his uh, secret lair where he's planning his uh, world domination, at least in the Hollywood sense. Sure. Um, so, welcome back to the show, Ted. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Our Unscripted, it's you know, free-flowing discussion, but we wouldn't, we couldn't get away without uh, talking, and I see your eyes <laughs> going up, knowing that we're talking about how you basically murdered Daniel Grayson on Revenge. So would you care to explain yourself, good sir? Uh, sure. Um, hmm. The best way to talk about it is it's, it's one of the more interesting and compelling parts of doing serialized television, is you get handed certain things that are beyond... What you might normally do in a story, which is you had an actor who at one point said, I'm ready to leave the show. Um, that's not a story we were originally telling between season three and season four, where he died in season four. But when that came up, then you start to think, well, okay, so that's a parameter that now we're dealing with. Um, how is he going to go out and how are we going to do it? So it was... Um, it was challenging, and we, we all did it together. We all murdered them together. <laughs> but we wanted to do it in a way that was interesting, provided story going forward, because we don't have an engine for this show. It's not a cop drama. There's no every week you catch a bad guy. So you, if you're going to kill a character, you want it to have resonance. You, we wanted to do it at a point in the season which was going to be unexpected, which was the middle of it, and would allow us to explore what the repercussions of that were for all the different characters. Um, on another level, on a personal level, my favorite type of stories are film noir. So uh, I like anti-heroes. I like characters that right at the end have a little bit of uh, self-awareness. Um, so when Josh and I first talked about this in between season three and season four, and he said, I was thinking of leaving the show and I was thinking of going out really dark and as a villain, I said, well, that's one way to go. But I think what we may want to think about is going out more as a film noir antihero, one who is like uh, William Holden in uh, Sunset Boulevard, who kind of realizes, oh, I sold my soul and I'm going to try to walk out of that house, but he can't. Or Fred McMurray, who's trying to light the cigarette at the end and realizes he sold the soul out for a dame. Um, or Sterling Hayden, trying to drive to go see the horses one last time before he dies in Asphalt Jungle. Like Those are the more compelling, kind of interesting, self-awareness uh, characters that I really am drawn to. And he, he, he responded to that, and then he talked to Sunil Nair, our showrunner, and the two of them kind of decided when he was going to go out and pitched all that stuff to the network and uh, when I got tapped to to write the episode the one thing I knew that we were going to have was he was going to get shot protecting Emily he was going to have uh, a final monologue and I knew I needed Conrad because I needed to see the moment for him where he sold his soul and that would allow us to see the flip side of it which is I realize I sold my soul I'm going to be a father I'm going to be a different father for my child, but that moment of realization came too late. Because then I feel like we were telling a story with this character as opposed to just turning him into a villain and killing him. Then that's almost like a snuff film. Like you're just waiting for this bad guy to die. Right. Um, and the other thing that I think we did as a writing team really, really well actually 
and that people responded to was we started to like Daniel after a while. Like we, we, we made him dark and then he seemed to have these moments with Emily where fans actually started to root for Demily again, which I think is insane <laughs> <laughs> because he shot her through the ovaries basically. Right. But I also think part, a lot of Demily fans are 14-year-old girls who really like how attractive Josh <laughs> sure, Bowman is. Sure. Um, hopefully when they get older, they'll realize maybe he's not yeah. the, the, the root for couple, uh, Demily. But um, I think we all, because we knew where we were going, because Josh had said, I want to go out at this point, because the network agreed with Sunil that having him leave in the middle of the season was going to be the most compelling and dramatic, we got to tell a story. And mm-hmm. I think... It wasn't just a random murder. Right. <laughs> it, you we had, we had a point one for day it. Going, you know what? I'm going to kill yeah, Josh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And certainly a writer on of my level at Revenge does not have <laughs> the uh, the freedom to just kill a character that has been there from the pilot. Sure, right. <laughs> but um, it was. Uh, I think it, it it was an honor to write that episode. I think it came out really well. I think John Trulaski did a great job in writing it. I think Henry. Uh, did an amazing job coming in in a couple of scenes and bringing Conrad back and reminding us who this force of evil was and and that almost Daniel almost didn't have a chance. I mean, he did have a chance. He ultimately made a lot of bad choices. But at his core, I think Daniel was an interesting, good guy. He just took some shortcuts that you got to pay for those. Sure. In stories. Yeah. Not in real life, apparently. There's plenty of bad guys (laughs) that go on forever. Right. Yeah. But uh, I think we, you know, I think we were trying to tell a story. A lot of fans were mad. Those right. fourteen-year-old girls sure. and those those fans in Brazil—they were not happy with that. Right. But, but I think it's what had to happen. Right. Because Josh also was right too in that there wasn't a lot more to do with the character, mm-hmm. other than just make him a complete villain, and and that would have been fine too. Sure. But I don't think he wanted to do that. And right. He, and he was smart too because now he's gone off and he's made a feature film, and right. it allows him to really stretch his wings in a different way. Right. Go out like Barry Sanders or Jim Brown. Absolutely. Like, of your game rather than just sort of dragging it out because you can. Right. And you don't want to be this kind of satellite character right. that doesn't have the meaty stuff to do. Right. So because we knew we were driving to him going out, mm-hmm. he got to do some meaty stuff. Right. So it was fun uh, for him. Yeah. I mean, you've spoken about the motivation behind it and the reasoning behind it and, and the way you crafted his departure, which is what we're going to call it now, the euphemism for, for you murdering, murdering him. him. <laughs> right. Um, at any point, like you said, you've gotten some not so pleased comments. Uh, granted, you know, not having to do with the show, just having to do with your choice, you know, not understanding. And me as a person. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, but not having to do with the show itself and, and more to do with the character that they cared about. Did that come into play at all? Did you put any thought into, you know what, the fans are going to be pretty pissed. How can we, what are the ramifications of this? And is there anything we can do? Or you just, you know what, we're going to tell our story and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And again, you're not going to, I'm sure it's not the point where you're going to lose fans in droves over well, Daniel's you, murder. You could. Yeah, I you could. I guess you could. Huge Josh Bowman fans could, you know. You, you absolutely oh, could. Oh. I mean, look, uh, you, you could. You, we, there have been shows when the girl cuts her hair that's true. and they stop watching. <laughs> that's true. So that's true. Uh, so that's that's uh, Ross and Rachel getting together. Right. Suddenly, jump the shark. Exactly. Um, I, look, we knew there were going to be a lot of people that were angry. Sure. Um, 
But I don't think you can... First of all, we didn't really have an option. Josh wanted to right. leave. <laughs> so you can't, you can't hold a gun to his head and say you're staying. Right. Um, and, and the other thing is the fans have a visceral reaction to this show because they care about it mm -hmm. so much. Uh, I get a lot of tweets uh, and, and sometimes letters to the office of people saying, why can't Emily just be happy? Well, that's <laughs> yeah. not really an interesting no. show that way. Right. Um, so you just have to, you can't, you can't be a slave to those fans who just want everything to work out mm -hmm. and be nice. That's, right. that's not where the drama lives. Sure. Um, yeah, because reality shows, people don't watch them because they yeah. really want the characters to be happy. They yeah. want them screaming and throwing things at each other. And well, deep down, I think they drama. want them to be happy sure. they, because they love them so much. Right. But they don't want to watch that. And if we did that, it would be really, really boring. Right. And they say, why is this show so boring? Right. Um, we have to just keep shaking things up. And just like we were saying before, because there is no case of the week, there's no supervillain mm -hmm. that comes in. Um, you have to look for those big incidents that cause a ripple effect and affect a lot of different people. The thing sure. that I was really happy about in that Daniel uh, death episode, or in the last one that I've done this season, which I can't talk about <laughs> because it hasn't aired yet, <laughs> right. but when you see it, you will see that all the storylines come together in that one moment. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of just uh, hanging chads of stories. They all build towards uh, the A, B, and C of the story lines all build to kind of one climactic event. Right. Um, which then has really big effects for all the characters. I mean, that Daniel death affected Emily and Nolan and Jack and Margot and Victoria and David Clark. Every single mm -hmm. person on the canvas was affected by that death. That means you're telling the right story. And all the writers after that episode and all the writers before it, we all knew that. And we were kind of building that and really playing it out. Mm -hmm. So I think, it, I think it's one of those things where you look back and go, like, I think we did that right. It felt, it felt good. And it was really, boy, the show is a team effort on all levels. But that was one huge team sure. effort. Um, and when you look at how those stories kind of built upon each other. And also when we were watching, it, it, it was satisfying when we were watching it, you could really see fans starting to go, even in the write-ups, the recaps, am I, I'm, how, am I crazy? I'm starting to root for Demily. Well, that's what we wanted. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> so that when he died, it really, Had we wanted people to yeah. really cry. Right. No, that's great. So, uh, now that we've covered that sort of elephant in the room, <laughs> wanted to talk, uh, just generally speaking, about, I know you've been going out uh, for you know pilot season and you know that sort of thing staffing season's coming up and there's a lot of this is a busy busy season for television yeah to be clear that's because my contract is up not revenge contract sure sure yeah sure. so so I, I for me I'm I've done now 69 episodes of this show mm -hmm. and have enjoyed it immensely and I'm incredibly grateful for it but now what I'm looking to do is say okay my, you, you sign a three-year contract or three-season contract, and it's over. And so now I'm going to go somewhere else. There's other people that are staying, but um, for me, I'm look, looking around because it's that time of year. Right. Like you said it's pilot season. And, and for staff writers, especially entry-level staff writers, and maybe even story editors, I'm not sure where that line is drawn. It's in their contract that they are really not allowed to pitch other projects. Correct. That is right. Um, but. 
I don't know if it's ESE or co-producer or whoever up, you're allowed to go, even if you're on staff, to pitch other shows. Is, is that correct? Is Usually that not. Well, it's a very rare thing in your first season sure. for them to allow you to pitch. Right. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's when you come on to a new show, they want you to be focused on that new show. Mm -hmm. And you're learning the language of the show. You're learning how to navigate the writer's room, how to navigate getting notes from the studio and the network. You're learning how to produce that show and get comfortable with the cast, get comfortable with the, the production and the post-production. There's a lot of stuff to learn on every new show that you go to because... Uh, when you've seen one show, you've seen one show. They're, they're not, none of them are identical to each other. So they want you to be focused on that. If you are a higher level writer, usually from producer up, uh, they allow you to develop in your second and third season on a show. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's the, the general thinking behind that. Sure. So without giving too much detailed information on your specific project, can you explain a little bit about the pilot process, about getting your pilot out there, about meetings and things like that? Wow, okay, I'm probably woefully underqualified <laughs> to talk about this as opposed to someone like my friend Sally Patrick who is developing Kingmakers for ABC. She's gone through this process, or my friends Dan Dworkin or Jay Beattie. I'm, I'm just now kind of starting this process. It's overwhelming. <laughs> as you go around with a project and, and start to speak to different studios and production companies that may be interested in what mm -hmm. you're doing. Um, uh, I've done it a little differently too than some people, like my friend Nikki Toscano can go out with, a, with just a, a pitch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, for me at my level, and uh, I've gone out and written a script and, and written a Bible and that type of thing because I, uh, I'm, I'm further back in the in in the process than a lot of my friends are, um, and so you have to do a little bit more on the convincing people that sure. you know what you're talking about and that you have an idea and a vision for the show. Because I do think networks and in specifically, but networks and studios are a little wary of the high concept pilot mm -hmm. without the fully developed series behind it. Sure, I think. There have been a number of cases in the past where there was this awesome pilot. I said, well, where does it go? I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think they want to know where it goes now. Sure. Um, and they are also looking for something more than just, it's uh, this special team of people that find the blood underneath the, the, the rug that catches the bad guy. Mm -hmm. like there's, there were a lot of those, and they're very good and, and very successful. But um, I think people are looking for the other kind of emotional components. So from my standpoint, you work with agents, managers, try to find homes at different studios and networks and production companies that will be down for hearing it. You try to get heard over the clatter. Right. Um, which is not easy because there's a lot of super, super talented and successful mm -hmm. people out there and really successful big names that can keep apparently 15 plates going at the same right. time. Which shouldn't be allowed. That's totally. <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. That's totally. Well, they, I mean, there's a reason why certain people are ex insanely successful mm -hmm. because they they have a very clear voice of who they are and the type of stories they tell. Right. And um, there's networks and studios that want to be in business with that. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but I, other than that, I, I'd probably be more qualified to answer that question in about six months than I am right well, now. Well, we'll revisit it. All right. Let's see. Um, you're a huge comic fan. I have a 20-month-old son. The past two years have been a blur for me. Right. Uh, what's out there that I should be reading? What are you reading now? Okay, that's, that's interesting. I'm actually I'm just looking over my shoulder at what have I been reading. Lazarus and Stumptown mm-hmm. um, by Rucka. Uh, oh, yeah. Great, great yeah, really, really talented guy. Those two are fantastic. Anything by Ed Brubaker. I've been hmm. digging through rereading Criminal, which is, I think, one of the best comic books that's ever been written, and I try to read that. Uh, I'm rereading it now. The Influencing Machine is an interesting comic book. It, it is a comic book, but it is um, not a traditional... Um, I, none of the ones that I've mentioned are traditional superhero comic books. But, right. Um, that one is a, a, a truly uh, intelligent, uh, insightful uh, piece about um, culture and uh, how we are influenced by uh, our fears or or the media, and um, it's, it's, that's one of those I just hand out to people. So you really need to read this. That is a, a perfect use of the comic book medium that, that transcends what people think is a, a comic book. Right. Oh, Robot Dreams is, <laughs> Robot Dreams is, there's no text in it, but it is, it makes me cry every time I read it. It is beautiful. I don't read, I'll be honest with you, I'm not reading a lot of, uh, in continuity comic books right now mm-hmm. for either Marvel or DC because they're so ingrained in their continuity right that if you do, if you miss an issue it's like watching a soap opera if you miss like two episodes you're like oh I don't even know where I'm at right right but I do love kind of out of continuity comic books mm-hmm. I love um, the graphic novels yeah, yeah. think things that take the idea of uh a superhero and kind of looks at them in a different mm-hmm. way. The the New Frontier, the Darwin Cook one, is one of my favorite books of all time because it it, it, it doesn't worry so much about where is the continuity now of, of these characters. It just helps, I wouldn't say redefine them, it helps focus who who they, each one of them are. Right. And, and, and what I particularly love about that book is it re-examines them through the unfiltered eye of the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. 40s 50s and 60s so it, it it it's he does a masterful job in that book so those are if you haven't read that i would definitely yeah, recommend that. that one out. yeah and that's the thing about comics people especially with the rise of the superhero and other media whether it's the avengers or flash and arrow gotham on tv batman versus superman all this stuff the impression still is that comic books are superhero right. based and there's so much more to them than that and again I think they do reach into there's many different levels in terms of the superhero books nowadays than there were say in the 50s when superhero was a good guy Batman was ooh the dark one but still it was really about just catching the penguin it, we, there was not much more than that right um, but you know with things like the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and all these other I don't want to just say dark, but really sort of self-exploratory books where there was so much more going on. The Chris Claremont X-Men run right. back in the 80s and, and things of that nature. It's comics are so much deeper now 
and I think that that makes for great drama, and it allows for that expansion. I mean, a lot of people don't know that uh, A History of Violence was a comic right. book, or Road to Perdition, right. The Walking Dead. I mean, there's just so many great stories out there that aren't guys in tights. Not that there's anything wrong with guys no, in No, no, I, I, absolutely not. But, yeah. I mean, um, Erica Schultz, who um, I wrote the Revenge, Revenge comic mm-hmm. book with, um, she does, she's done a great um, uh, action a non-superhero spy type of uh, assassin piece called M3, which is a great book. And she's just doing volume after volume of that. Um, there's a whole world of really cool story stories out there that have nothing to do with masks and tights and capes. Mm-hmm. And, and that what I love about the medium is that you get to really dive into their psyches. You get to um, see how they think. Um, it, it, it's just it's it's just a great use of the medium the 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 visuals the text how they um, feed each other it's unlike really anything else um, you get to live in those panels and really explore them and when the artist is really great you get to see just layer upon layer of new new uh, images so I, I, for me and and meaning um, so for me I think there's just so many cool things out there and and it's just fun to just bounce around and, and uh, See, see what's out there. Right. I don't know, but that's... I, I agree with the... Um, that comics are certainly deeper now mm-hmm. than, they, than they were. I'm always uh, grateful when I see things that aren't just dark and gritty. <laughs> right, no, that's true too. <laughs> because it's almost... What I like so much about the Flash TV show right now mm-hmm. is that there's some hope to it. And there's a main character that... Uh, enjoys being a superhero, enjoys helping people, enjoys inspiring people. I think there's been this uh, swing towards uh, rejecting hope and um, happiness and thinking that that's kind of silly. Uh, I think it stemmed from really that rejecting the Adam West uh, Mm -hmm. 66 Batman. And the the Batman and Robin, Batman Forever movies. Absolutely. Quite frankly... I love Batman and Robin because I think that thing is hysterical. I mean, that movie... <laughs> Unintentionally so. But... Yeah, I, I don't... See, I, I would even say that I think that movie is intentionally hysterical. <laughs> I, I actually... It's the one of the recent Batman movies that I own uh, on on Blu-ray because sometimes I throw it in and I and I, I laugh and I watch it and I go, I guarantee you Joel Schumacher <laughs> made that choice 100% on purpose right. and it's glorious in how goofy and silly it is. And it knows exactly what it wants to be. Um, I like, I like the idea. Like Flash, I just love. And what Brendan Routh was doing with um, uh, Ray Palmer as the uh, as the Adam, he's funny, he's upbeat, he's hopeful. I, those types of characters are really great. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're inspiring to kids. And superheroes are supposed to be inspiring. Sure. Um, part of the issue of fanboys writing comics now is mm-hmm. that they just want to take all those old stories and just make them gritty. Right. You know, and have this person kill someone else and Right. Okay. Thanks Chris Nolan. No. <laughs> right. But but I mean but it's but it's almost now it's 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 edgier to be hopeful and colorful and mm-hmm. and, and bright and uh, so anyways, I I I I I totally like a lot of those. I mean, I certainly saw Dark Knight a bunch of times in in mm-hmm. the theater, but I'm I'm I think there's a lot of room for a lot of different types of superhero stories sure. that, they, that they don't just have to be that super serious Chris Nolan. My favorite version of Batman 
is the Batman Brave and the Bold cartoon. That cartoon okay. is insanely awesome. Mm-hmm. It's funny, it's thoughtful, it's intelligent, uh, and at times really emotional. Right. I mean, there are some crazy emotional episodes uh, in that that you would not expect. And it's the best version of Aquaman that there's ever been. <laughs> I guarantee you. It, okay. is, it is the funniest it, that show is amazing. And when your kid is a little bit older, mm-hmm. you're going to want to watch that. <laughs> it is fantastic. Right. And that's a silly, very hopeful f- crusader for justice, not like deep, dark, right. night m- version of Batman that I love. Sure. Just like there's a lot of different versions of Superman. There's, not, there's a lot of different mm-hmm. versions of Batman. There have been. They've sure. been around for decades and decades. Yeah. There's not just the Chris Nolan version. Right. Or the Frank Miller version. There's right. a lot of different kinds. And that's what I love about those heroes is they reflect where society is at that time. Right. Or should. That's true. No, that's absolutely true. And actually, the Frank Miller version, the Chris Nolan version, they, they're fairly similar. Sure. I do like the way that Marvel has sort of handled their business, so to speak. Um, in that, yeah, I think everyone does. Yeah, <laughs> they, well, they, seem to, they seem to control the world right now. Right, but I think it hits that sort of nail on the head with what you're talking about. They've managed to sort of keep that hope, keep that light. Captain America is, there's, there's no angst in Captain America. He's Captain America. He is everything you would expect him to be. Yeah. Uh, he's that archetype of a hero. But Tony Stark is sort of flawed, but he's still a hero. He's a wisecracking hero. There's humor there in addition to that sort of darkness and, and other issues that go on. So I think they've done a great job of having heroes as heroes, not heroes as these tortured souls like, you know, in, in some of the DC stuff that you may see with the arrows and, and the Batmans and, and stuff like that. Yeah, any look, it's bizarre on what this is a totally insane thing we're talking about. We're talking about right. we're talking about Norse gods and, and giant green men right. and, and and flying aircraft carriers that can right. turn invisible. I mean, all that stuff is bananas. <laughs> <laughs> so when you if you're gonna try to take that super, super seriously right. and be like I don't think you're being true to what that is. It should be fun, but find what you're, what they do in that very well is, is they figure out what the theme of the story is Mm -hmm. that they're telling. And that's why I think people respond to it because they understand the story that they're watching. Um, And that in the end, they have heroes that are, are are being good people and making the right moral choice. Sure. um, To help as many people as they can. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that. And I love the sense of humor about it. I, I really do. I, I think, I, I think Shield has turned into a really Agents of Shield have turned into a really good show. I like, I really like a- Agent Carter because again, those are they have a sense of humor. They they're not angsty main characters. Mm-hmm. They're driven to do good, and uh, they never give up. Right. That's that's what you're looking for in in those type of archetype hero stories. So. Yeah. Um, if I want to watch a film noir movie, I'll watch a film noir movie. <laughs> sure. If I want to watch people with magic powers flying around and punching each other through buildings, I'd like to have a little bit of a sense of humor and I'd like yeah. them to, to know, like, oh, those are good people. I like right. Them. They're my root force. As somebody who obviously works in television and as somebody who has written a comic, granted, it's, you know, the revenge comic, but still, it's mm-hmm. um, talking about the mediums because there's, I think we've touched on it before, uh, that trend of a lot of, whether it's screenwriters, TV writers, wanting to get projects out there and seeing the uh, propensity for executives and producers to love comic books, 
to turn their screenplay into a comic book, just translate right. it straight over. Which, I, again, talking to a lot of comic book writers, they hate that. They Professional comic book writers. Right. They think that's ridiculous. In addition to not creating a comic for the right reason because you want to, you have an idea for a great comic book, the mediums are very different. There's a lot more introspection that can go on in a comic book that would be some weird, drawn-out voiceover or yeah. something ridiculous in a film or TV show. So maybe you can touch a little bit about how you found that transition and, again, how different the two mediums are in terms of writing for these characters and the dialogue and inner thought bubbles. There's no thought bubbles in film or TV other than, I guess, a voiceover. But, other than a voiceover. Right. But, um, Which can be overplayed really quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. Um, whereas in a comic book, I think there is a expectation for that type of thought bubble or, mm-hmm. or from the mid-80s it turned into the text box. Sure. A little uh, right. Because I guess thought bubbles look silly. <laughs> Although, I like thought bubbles. Right. They, they look kind of cool. That's, they're a, they're, a, they're um, part of the medium right. of comic books. Sure. Uh, for me, I was grateful that Erica Schultz and Emily Shaw, who was the editor at Marvel, were were partners in that endeavor to write the Revenge comic book because mm-hmm. it is so different <laughs> from writing for TV. So it was it was great to have some some partners there, and Erica did an amazing job of taking my jumbled ideas and trying to form it into a script, and and we went back and forth on things. Uh, and Emily Shaw was this great guru who. Uh, an editor, our editor there, who would say, "No, we need to cut this back," or "I think a thought bubble here," or you know, text, or we need to get into the the head of someone here. That's the part I love. That's mm-hmm. moving into the comic book version of uh, Emily Thorne or Amanda Clark was eye opening to me, and I thought, "Boy, she really belongs in this medium." Like she, it really helped to be able to have her smile and say one thing uh, mm-hmm. to a person. That she was her her mark her target, but then to get into her thought process and understand how she was breaking them down or what she was observing about them and how she was going to use that piece against them later, that to me was really fun and I I hope for the readers was really fun too because on the TV show you just see Emily Van Camp give her steely mm-hmm. kind of I think she called it the alligator look or the crocodile <laughs> eye or whatever it was, but. Uh, so you would see her do that, but you didn't know what the wheels were turning. Right. What you she knew was they thinking. were turning, but right. you, you didn't know what was turning. Exactly. That. And so for me, as a writer, it was fun to kind of get in and say, well, what was she thinking? Mm-hmm. How was she breaking this person down? Right. So I, it, 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 you have to be willing to admit you don't know a lot of stuff and then be willing to learn. But I, I like that. I like, like not knowing and trying to get better. As for turning something in to a comic book in order to sell it, I, I don't understand that process. It, it, that, to me, that's, that's chasing fads. My friend Dustin, who, who did Descender, who, you know, this great comic book, that they did it, he did it because he wanted to do Descender and had a story to tell. And then, lo and behold, Sony buys it and they're going to make it into a movie. That, he didn't do it to make a movie. He mm-hmm. did it because he had the story inside him that he wanted to tell. Sure. I, I think the universe sort of picks out the the authentic pieces somehow for the most part mm-hmm. i mean there are always examples of the other way around sure. we'll turn it into a comic book and then we walk in we drop the comic book down and the executive says oh it already exists as a comic book sure. and so now we'll make it into a movie but i think that's kind of how you end up with cowboys and aliens you know <laughs> <laughs> which 
I, you know, it's fine, but it didn't feel like there was a need, this driving need for that mm -hmm. story other than the title. Right. <laughs> you know, it seemed like a pitch as opposed to, I have the story to tell. Right, 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 right. So I don't know. I, I, it, there is a little bit of the snake eating its own tail, I think, sometimes. But at some point, that's going to be exposed. And I think it sort of has a little bit. I mean, I, I, Walking Dead had a huge following, and they had a story to tell. And they all, it was also came along at the right time. If Walking Dead came out in the mid-'80s or 90s, I don't think anyone would yeah. have cared. Yeah. So that's one of those zeitgeist things where, wow, it all happened at the right time. Right. And they made a really high-quality show. Right, with Frank Darabont. I mean, he's brilliant. And, and, and everyone know. who came on, all the writers on that sure. show are fantastic. Yeah. The, the, the cast on that show is amazing. It looks amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not even a zombie fan. Right. But it, there's a reason why people just can't stop gobbling that thing up. Well, and I think that whether it's The Avengers, whether it's Walking Dead... <laughs> In order to break outside of that sort of core audience of horror fans or comic book fans, you have to give them more than it's a zombie show. It's really a show. I mean, the zombies are now sort of, especially now that we're further along into it, they're just part of the, the world around them. Right. Um, and it's really the characters and their interaction and their interaction with other human beings. It's really just a human drama that's set in this sort of zombie apocalypse nowadays. Yeah, the, the, the zombies are more like the weather. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, like the, it's, it, what's interesting is not, oh, killing the zombies or, or, or how they're going to get away from them. Sure. It's how they interact with other groups of people right. or within their own team. Yeah. Because then it becomes a story about human drama, which is actually the early Romero stuff. That's what that was about, sure. too. I mean, Night of the Living Dead is really cool because of what's happening in that house mm -hmm. with those people. Um, that's what's interesting. Right. Not the zombies. The zombies are just an, uh, an incident to make the people show their true colors. So that's what I think Walking Dead does, does um, really well. I, I think you also tap, touched on something that is important, and I hope people start to realize that catering to fanboys is the wrong thing to do. I hate the term fanboys. It, it is inherently uh, exclusive. There's a huge group of growing female fans mm -hmm. and also gay fans and uh, transgender fans that like the genre. And that the idea of saying fanboys and trying to cater to this mm. group of primarily white, usually angry, ranting people that run websites, I, I don't think that's a a group of people we should cater to, and it's not a group of people that actually are going to make your thing be a hit. Mm -hmm. They'll write about it online, but they're not the people that... They didn't make Green Lantern a hit. Mm -hmm. If you look at the number of sales that Walking Dead has as a comic book, that they're catering to the fanboys, as opposed to what the TV show does week after week, the, all those fanboys could go away from the show, and it would have zero impact sure. on, on their weekly ratings. Right. So I hope that what happens is we stop worrying about that group of that very small, vocal, often angry. I mean, when you when you see what what they've done in the Gamergate stuff and how exclusive they want to be, I don't want to think about fanboys. I want to think about fans of the medium mm -hmm. and fans of the zombie medium and fans of the superhero medium, fans of graphic novels. We should be really catering to those people and trying to expand that. That's why I love, there's a, there's a new book out called uh, Gotham Academy, hmm. which is 
some uh, young girls, and they're in Gotham City, and they're they're kind of it, it's almost like a Scooby Doo, very hopeful. I think the new Batgirl in general has been terrific mm -hmm. and and very inclusive and very upbeat and and not dark uh, and and catering to people, but still telling really cool, exciting, interesting stories. I think the more we can do that, the more we can bring people in uh, who aren't just those. That, that small group that we associate with the comic book shops. Guys like me. <laughs> <laughs> Balding white guys. <laughs> I, think we, I think the genre and the medium, the comic book medium needs to be, and should be, really, really inclusive. And, and, and hopefully will continue to be that way. Right, right. And it's good for everybody. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we'll, get, we'll get really cool new people involved in making of things uh, that's why i think marvel has been really interesting who they've been courting for the netflix stuff for their movies uh for for who's been writing it writing their projects i think it's great i think that the more we do that the more the stories are going to get interesting you get to see that the comic book world is a fun sandbox to play in mm -hmm. but it is there's not there's that's what i was saying before there's no one version of batman there's no sure. one version of superman or wonder woman they there's lots of different versions of them and there are versions that have not been invented yet or used uh so that it'll be i, I think we're at at the crux of a, 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 a an interesting turning point in and how we can use these characters and what kind of stories we want to tell right um i do think that the the comic book business sort of again mirrors the entertainment business in that with comic books and their popularity you do have the studios i.e the dcs and the marvels who are very corporate and they're very they're attached to studios obviously yeah. although marvel sort of branched out but you know they still some of the properties are still with fox you know whether it's the x-men or spider-man and sony whatever but you have all these great independent publishers, the Images mm -hmm. and the Archaeas and you know, all these other publishers that publish great material. And it seems like TV, where you have the networks and you have all these great cable networks that you didn't have 15 years ago, producing 10 years ago, producing great content, the FXs, the AMCs, which is really, really great, I think, and, and allows sort of much more freedom in terms of developing ideas that don't conform to a specific formula that the the networks like to use and it's not even just there i think it's it's hulu it's netflix sure, it's amazon absolutely prime and and i think the the, the more specific you get in your storytelling mm -hmm. which also means the more risky sometimes the more truthful the less generic right uh that's how your stories will be and your shows mm -hmm. will be sought out and found by the the targeted demographic that is hungry for that type mm -hmm. of thing. There will always be people who want to watch the network cop show or the network sitcom. They exist for a reason. Sure. They're good. I've written them. I will write them again. I enjoy them. But there's also this growing desire for, but that's not all I want. Right, I that's don't, the thing. I don't want to just eat cake every night. Sometimes right. I want to have a salad. Right, Sometimes right, right. I want to have sushi. Sometimes mm -hmm. I want Thai food. You want to go around and try different flavors and and i think it's insanely awesome that there are uh, avenues out there where you can see really challenging look, look you could not do the netflix version of daredevil as a network tv show on abc you couldn't do it as a movie because it just wouldn't be able to sustain itself right you can do it on netflix because the people who go to netflix want that type of thing mm -hmm. 
Um, transparent. Transparent is a perfect example. If you tried to do that even on AMC, I don't know if you would be able to to carry that show. Right. Or but, attract the audience enough to keep it going. And the very fact that it's one of the, you know, the few shows that they really had out at that mm-hmm. point, that just brought more of a spotlight Absolutely. on it and, it. and it helped that they had just amazing writing and amazing sure. acting. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, and also they released all of them at the same time I, so that if you liked it, it didn't have agree. to, like you air a pilot and then, oh, it doesn't get good ratings and then it just sort of disappears. Dump them out. Get that attention, get people addicted, get people to realize what a great show it is. Which is a model that works for them. It's harder to do when you're doing a network TV show when the expense is so high. Mm -hmm. I mean, pilots tend to cost anywhere between five to twelve million dollars. Right. Your weekly episodes run about three and a half to four million for your, your dramas. It's a lot of money to put up front and hope that you're going to get 13 people, thir- people to watch all 10 or 13 episodes. Right. But, but it just means you have to approach those shows in a, in a different way. Right. But I think, it's, I think it's really cool. I'm really excited about where the industry seems to be going and the more specific shows are getting with their audiences. I think, I think watching Better Call Saul is ex- so exciting for me week to week because I'm just... I'm just so thrilled to see that type of storytelling, that type of slowly evolving. Uh, it's like a graphic novel or, or a novel, just a, just a regular novel that you're just watching. They're asking you to pay attention. They're asking you to go with them. They're at, they're saying it's going to unfold slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to make some unconventional choices along the way, but that's that's what I want when I'm watching a show like that. And clearly, that's what a lot of other people want too. Right? Not everyone, sure, but it just means okay. So we'll make it for this budget, and we'll. Right. Make this number of episodes a season, and, but that's cool. Yeah, I love Vince Gilligan, and I, I think once I got into Better Call Saul, and once I started to appreciate it, was when I distanced it from Breaking Bad, because they're very different stories. The, you know, the there's a couple characters, obviously Saul and uh, Mike, Mike yeah. that are in the show, but really it's it's a different story. Completely. Yeah, I mean, and I expected it to be, it's a spin-off. You expect some, a lot of the same tones and a lot of the same, and it's not at all. It's no. It's very slow-paced. It's, it's actually brilliant. I actually you know, think, great. I think it is brilliant that they were able to take some characters and, and, and bring an audience and say, listen, we're going to tell a different, it's a different show. Mm-hmm. We're telling a very different story. It is, the, the episode 5-0, which I think is episode 6 Okay. Um, which is basically the history of Mike, the backstory of Mike. Oh, right, with him killing those cops. Absolute spoiler alert. Sorry, crap. <laughs> it is one of the best 43 minutes of television I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it is as good as any episode of Breaking Bad. It's a completely different show. Mm-hmm. But it is... My wife and I watched that episode, and when we got to the end, we were both crying. I'm getting emotional even thinking about it. And we hit rewind and we watched it again just because I, I was like I need to experience that again I need to see what they did it's a perfectly scripted episode it's a perfectly directed episode the acting is phenomenal there were things that were what I love so much about Better Call Saul which is different from Breaking Bad is in Better Call Saul sometimes you know what's going to happen I knew when he got into that car at the near the end, mm-hmm. that he had hidden, that Mike had hidden a gun. Yeah, I did too. 
you knew that because you saw him. They showed you him breaking in. They didn't show you putting the gun away. Mm -hmm. But the second the gun was taken away, I went, oh, he. that's why he broke in. He hid. But that's not what the episode was about. That was all precursor to when he showed up to his daughter-in-law's house at the end and gave one of the most incredible monologues I've ever heard in Jonathan Bank. Right. I mean, that guy is just insanely awesome. Sure. You didn't know what he was going to say in that moment. You didn't know what he was going to confess, what the story was, any of that. So what a normal show would do would be have the gunfight be the climax of the episode. That was the, that was the precursor mm -hmm. to the climax. The climax was that monologue. Right. And then so brilliant to end on that last question of how are you going to live with it? You know, <laughs> that, that, that whole moment is, that's a cliffhanger. So it's driving you to the next episode. It's, they're firing on all cylinders mm -hmm. on that show. It is a stunningly good show. And it is shockingly different from Breaking Bad. Absolutely. Which is fantastic. Which is why I think at the beginning, a lot of people, myself included, were a little confused. It wasn't bad. We, it's great TV, but at the same time, it's like, this, how is this a Breaking Bad spinoff other than, you know, Saul is in it. Right. Um, and he's very different, obviously. Yeah, he's Jimmy. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's not even he's Saul. Jimmy McGill, yeah. right. But once you sort of accept it for what it is as its own entity, as its own show, you realize how amazing it truly is. Yeah, th th those guys are just uh, totally awesome. And, and also brilliant in the sense, too, of, of knowing that the best dramatic actors out there are usually comedians. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? I've always said that. Because so our sense of timing, timing is, is perfect. perfect. Yeah, you just, if, you are, if you're funny, you know where the timing is to make something work. Mm -hmm. And you're also not afraid to look foolish right. or absolutely. ugly. Or you, because being funny is not about being awesome or cool right it's about or even telling jokes right it's about being the schmuck and uh, having them identify and laugh at your problems mm -hmm. and laugh at the crappy things that happen right. to you so if you are a comedian and a really good one and bob odenkirk i mean he's more than a comedian no he's, absolutely he's just a, i mean he's insanely mr show is one of the the most incredible actually i think it is the most incredible sketch comedy show ever i mean you have to. Monty Python is, of course, you know the apex. Sure, but, sure, sure. But they took what Monty Python did and, and brought it to even. They they played in that sandbox in a, in a more kind of uh, esoteric and, mm -hmm. and insane way. And they had more technology to do stuff. Sure. But but um, those guys are cranced in. I mean, they they just know how to be both funny and be super dramatic. Mm -hmm. Without being overwrought or, right. or being hysterical. Yeah, and I've always thought, again, Robin Williams was, was an insanely talented comedian. Some of his best roles ever were his dramatic roles. Of course. Google Huntings of the World. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, it's for that very reason that you mentioned, that they're just completely unafraid right. to do whatever it takes. They're, you know, There's no sort of barriers or walls. They, they just let it out. Or shame. Or shame, <laughs> yeah. Which is probably one right, of the right. harder things to, to overcome. I yeah, think, you, you have to... They, Good comedy actors and comedians put ego aside. Mm -hmm. uh, and they know that by doing that, you expose some type of truth. And that's Absolutely. where the real comedy lies. I mean, Roseanne is one of the best shows, especially those first three or four seasons mm -hmm. of Roseanne. It's one of the best shows that's ever been on TV because she just was unflinching in her look at reality there, of what a family is, what a mom is, what a dad is, what daughters are like. That show was just phenomenal right. because it was honest and it wasn't afraid and they were they weren't afraid to look silly or, or foolish or, or, or like ugly. they seemed to welcome it. Yeah, yeah. they wanted it. They yeah. knew that that's what that's you should truth. do. That's yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that's how you connect with people and have your audience. Right. 
Today on USA Today, I saw that they have their annual Save Our Shows poll. What shows that are on now, I don't know if you've seen that list, what are you watching that you would love to, that may be on the bubble, that you would love to see return? Well, I really liked Agent Carter. I, I, I Agent think, I, think I, I think Agent Carter is a, a, really, um, I, I, a really smart show. I love that it's set in a different era. I love the the idea that it is a strong woman mm-hmm. in a male-dominated world. It gets to play with a lot of those dynamics. I think there's a lot of room to grow in that show, um, either playing at the end of the 40s or the beginning of the 50s. Um, I think it's a really... I, and she's just great. It's well-directed, yeah. it's, and the supporting cast has been terrific, and it's been exciting. I, um, I, I think that's that's a show that I definitely... Would love to see come back. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what else was on there, but uh, I'm trying to think what else I'm I'm watching. I, I uh, I've been so swamped with sure. finishing Revenge that that's you know I I I also watch shows that have no danger of being canceled or have already been renewed, like right. Flash or Arrow. So um, let's see. So um, well, American Crime I think is another one. I think I haven't Amer- seen that. American Crime is is a really is a really good. Uh, really cool, dramatic, um, edgy, smart show. I, I'm and I like seeing stuff like that mm-hmm. on a network like ABC. I think they're. I think it was bold to put it on. I think it's unflinching, and I think uh, the writing, direction, and acting is spectacular. Really, really good. And uh, person of interest is really great too. Mm-hmm. I think. I think that's an example of a show that I think started as just like a. a an episodic kind of almost cop show and then and and did a really great job of universe building mm-hmm. and uh, figuring out how things work and 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 creating their bad guys and and conspiracies that that that's really really good i other shows that i've been watching just really like you know orphan black and yeah, uh, Twelve Monkeys surprised me a lot. I thought it was like really, really well scripted and well acted. I was like, "Wow, this is really good," because I, I loved the movie. Mm-hmm. And sometimes and Terry when Gilliam. you right Terry Gilliam and Madeline Stowe, yeah, um, <laughs> that's true. Um, but I loved the movie and it meant a lot. I actually saw a test screening. That was the first test screening oh. I ever went to when I was in film school, and then I saw the movie, the completed movie. So that was. Uh, but and I loved it, and I and I loved La Jete, which was the short film it was based on. Okay, but the show's done really great. Yeah, and really, really smart and clever. So I'd like to see that come back. With the success of Twelve Monkeys and Fargo, oh, uh, they... Fargo, my gosh, <laughs> do I love Fargo? <laughs> I've watched that series twice from beginning to end. That thing is awesome. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm just, uh, it, it seems that uh, if you get good. Showrunners, you can take movies that are great. Obviously, they're they're both great films with sort of iconic filmmakers, and create great shows from it. Not saying that they should take no it, it, every film out there. No, but it's but it's, it's really having a, a a point of a point for telling the story. Absolutely, Fargo was it's sort of a unique setting. Absolutely, Fargo just took the idea of the movie, but also built upon it when. We realized about four episodes in that oh, this is actually not just a retelling; mm-hmm. it is a continuation. Right. <laughs> that there was that 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 they're use, we're, we're just seeing another corner of sure. this same world. Right. Um, where there is a little bit of bleed over. Uh, they the, that show was just absolutely 
brilliant because they had a point of view. There was a reason to tell that story mm -hmm. uh, that was similar to in tone and theme as the first, as, as the movie. But um, it, because they had a story to tell, it, it really worked brilliantly. And there was a r purpose for doing it. You shouldn't just say like, oh, we're going to, um, I don't even know what, kind of movie like we're, we're going to take the movie election and we're going to turn it into a TV show that could be a great TV show sure you could do a whole show about that or Citizen Ruth uh, those could be TV shows but right. if you don't have a purpose for, for doing it you're just using the name right which happens all the time right all the time I mean there's so how many times have you gone to the theaters and seen oh right they're they're making a team the movie. Right. Okay. One or, it goes one way or the other. Right, right. Just, okay. Yeah. I, of course, because that's right. a name that people recognize. Right. But uh, Fargo is anything but that. Mm -hmm. 12 no, Monkeys absolutely. is anything but that. There is a, a point. And Battlestar Galactica. Oh, absolutely. Know, was, 100%. That was, when that first was coming out, I went, boo. Right. And I didn't watch the first season. And then I had a friend tell me, you're an idiot. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> you have to watch this. Yeah. And I went, uh, and I, I think I probably watched, I was one, it was the Portlandia. I just watched the whole thing right. and, <laughs> in like three days, hadn't eaten or showered, right. but it was, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, if there's a point for, for playing around in that universe, great. Right. If you're just using the name, shame on you. I'm supposing you're also super excited about the news that it looks like Netflix might do continuation of Full House. <laughs> you know it's funny um when uh in a different lifetime right uh when i left soap opera and i was trying to figure out what to do and spend a lot of time just being depressed and smoking pot and watching tv <laughs> i think full house ran like there were two hours in new york where it was on like wgn and then two hours when it was on a, a different Mm -hmm. like like 11 Alive or something. And I would just sit and I watch four hours <laughs> of Full House a day. And I would just, then I would suddenly get into it and say like, well, like start to dissect, you know, Uncle Jesse. And right. Like what these stories meant. And then I was at a bar one night and I was, I was single at the time and I was on a date and I looked down the bar and, and uh, Bob Saget was down there. And I think he was on a date. And I sent him a drink, and he came over and goes, why'd you do that? And I said, well, I was in a really dark place and, and at the time, and Full House like, really kind of got me through it. He went, Jesus, all right, <laughs> let me buy you a drink. <laughs> right. and, then, and then we closed the bar down. It was one of those Hollywood moments where mm -hmm. we laughed, and we were like, I'm totally going to call you, man. We exchanged right. phone numbers. We never, we never called each other. I'm sure he was like, that was some weird, weird broken guy in a bar. But, uh, but the, I, hey, who knows? I don't know. Sure. Although, although Bob Saget seems like the kind of guy, if he didn't lose your number, he might have called. He might have. I don't, he, I'll take it that he lost my number. Yeah, I'm he sure. seems like one of those really, you know. Yeah, Bob, if you're out there, yeah. give me a call. <laughs> um, look, hey, who knows? It could be, it could be great. I, it, there's a lot of kids out there that need new stuff to watch. You know, maybe it'll be funny. Now, we are at a point where we normally like to do uh, a quick segment called Reading, Watching, Playing, and Listening. Uh, you've already mentioned sort of what you're reading comic-wise, but I don't know if you're reading anything else. You probably don't have time. Uh, but, and we've discussed a little bit about what you're watching, but um, if you have any 
film. Actually, here, hand me that book right there. I'm, uh, Waylon Green just sent me oh, this yeah. book, um, which I've been reading, which is uh, Man, like a serious book. Man and His Gods, which is uh, a really interesting book. Uh, Waylon Green is my uh, mentor mm -hmm. and uh, just one of my dearest friends. Uh, he just wrote Killing Jesus, the, the miniseries. Um, I was out in New York with him, and we were discussing... Uh, religion and atheism and all that and he said oh I have a book for you to read and I've been reading it and it's that's really really interesting it's heady mm -hmm. but it's uh, I like that I, I read a lot of non-fiction I just reread uh, People's History of the United States which is oh, cool. fantastic I can um, only read seem, seem to read non-fiction yeah that's I, that's what I'm drawn to yeah um, I don't know that's that's basically the, the, alright so the other thing was so that's what I'm reading uh, watching Watching, uh, uh, oh, you know what I'm watching and loving is uh, Last Man on Earth. I haven't seen that. Oh my god, really? it's really uh, everything about it: direction, acting, writing, music. Uh, the um, just fantastic. It is really a wonderfully bold, interesting hmm. uh, comedy. I love seeing stuff out there. Uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is really good. Yeah. I really like that. Um, uh, I watched Black Mirror, which uh, was incredibly right. unsettling. And <laughs> in a good way. In a really, really, really good way. Yeah. And also, I have to say, uh, thank God for John Oliver. I've been watching John Oliver. And, Love that guy. And that guy is, he's really bringing it, and he's filling what I was fearful was going to be the void of... The huge void. Of Colbert. And, and Yes. But I, I will say this. I love The Daily Show. I yeah. know people on The Daily Show, but I would say... Colbert was the hardest show on TV. And I think it was the hardest show to write, the hardest show to perform, to maintain. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, I, Stephen Colbert and his writing staff brought it every single night. And that was really... I was afraid when I saw that was leaving, but boy, has John Oliver been phenomenal. Right. Absolutely. Phenomenal. Oh, you know what else? Episodes. I just finished oh. episode season four, and I love that show. I'm, I'm basically just mentioning comedies, but I guess, I guess that's what I've been it's watching. It's funny, a lot of drama writers I know watch comedies because they're in that world. They need you know, the sort of <clears throat> excuse me, levity of comedies to sort of break that. I don't know. Yeah, I also, I also my brother's a stand-up comic. Oh. He's, he, he's a sports writer, does sullybaseball.com, but he also was a, a has been a stand-up comic for years and years and years, and a lot of my friends are stand-up comics. So. As you... Yes, yeah. Cece Pleasance, who right. uh, you interviewed. She yes. is my She's best hysterical. friend, and she is hysterical. And, and ironically or unironically is also very pleasant. Oh, yes. Well, she very fooled you then. She's <laughs> really not at all. She's, yeah. she's a horrible monster of a person. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she disguised it well. She does. Yeah. She's, she's a very good liar. Yeah. She's real. That's why she does very well in Hollywood. <laughs> Um, and the other one was, so it's reading, uh, playing, do you play any games, video games, board games, Oh boy, I am so, when I was in New York, I, living there in the late 90s, mm -hmm. I used to play video games until like four in the morning. <laughs> and then one, and one day I was playing X-Wing and I blew up the Death Star and I think it was probably three o'clock in the morning. And I had, as world turns, uh, I had to be there at 8. And I, and I was so pumped and jazzed. And I wanted to call someone. Then I realized, wait, I just 
blew up the Death Star in a video game. And then right then, I just took all my video games, threw them away, and I've never played a video game since. So that, that was your mic drop. That was. I mean, well, but it was also more like, wait. What am I doing? You did not accomplish anything. You, right. you, you just played a video game for eight hours and, and think you've blown up the... You, you're, you weren't protecting Yavin. You, <laughs> you just wasted eight hours of your life and many, many, many before that. So uh, I do not allow myself to play video games. There's some good ones out there. I know, I know. And, and sometimes I will watch friends play them. But that for me is like watching. I it was a, sure. I was a big smoker for a while. So now sometimes I'll watch someone smoke right. a cigarette, but I don't let myself actually do it myself. Uh, on my phone, I played Angry Birds for a little bit. That would be the one thing. Like sure. when I was in a waiting room, I did, but then I, after a while, I was like, then they start wanting to charge you. Oh right. To like get, oh you can't really defeat this unless you buy. I'm like well, screw that. Right. Like, no. no. Yeah. I got I downloaded for ninety nine cents. Right. That's what I thought. It, oh, so now it's not fair. Right now. Oh, now yeah. I got to pay your little right. fee to be able to it's beat like the this cable level. Company. No, yeah. that. that that cured me. I started getting into it, and my wife was complaining. You're playing Angry Birds a lot, and then once they started charging me, yeah, something, it was I'm like, over. Nah, I'm over. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. And uh, listening to. Oh uh, well, this is embarrassing because anyone. Well, now we have to hear it. Uh, well, my friends, most of my coworkers, all of my coworkers, not most, all of them, sure. make fun of me because really, I, what do I listen to? I listen to fish because that's, because I'm a fish head. Yeah. Uh, so, fish. I thought you were going to say like Justin Bieber no, or something. No, it's, I listen to a lot of fish um, and then Beatles. Um, I'm not, there. I don't, people, my friends like, oh, there's this band and this. Right. I like Flaming Lips. I went to see them on New Year's where sure. they covered the, Sergeant Pepper, that was great. Well, at least you pick good bands, even if you don't know. Yeah. Keep up with the modern. And then, and then, um, also, I just I like the Black Keys. Are they are they hip? They were a few couple years ago. Ah! Nominated for some Grammys like okay. a couple years ago. Um, yeah, my wife, my wife says all oh, your music is like old, You're just like old white man music. So uh, Harry Nilsson's my favorite singer of all time. Are the Black Keys an old white man band? I don't know. I don't know. They're a hipster so. band. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I'm not plugged in anything. Gotcha. It's if you're if you're going to listen, if you look through my iPod, it would be Brahms, uh, Bach, Mozart, Fish, Harry Nielsen, Talking Heads, and Beatles. That's pretty. I'm much. surprised you have an iPod. I was thinking you had a record player. Well, not, I, that's <laughs> see how old I'm I am. Just, I'm, I'm just it's it's I'm my kidding. iPhone. I don't even have an iPod. That's how. Yeah. Uh, I'm so not plugged I'm in. <laughs> I'm just old. Um, cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's Thank always, you for having it's me. It's great. It's always a pleasure to talk with you because you ask great questions and it's fun. Yeah, no, it was absolutely fun. Um, be sure to follow Ted on Twitter at Carterhole, K A R T E R H O L. Uh, and for the latest updates on recently released and upcoming interviews and features, you can follow us on Twitter at Scribes and find us on Facebook and Google+. And of course, on our website, scriptscribes.com. Thank you all for listening.